Hi, I'm Dr. Elizabeth Esty, your host for our second episode in our Colorado Bridge series, MAT in the ED, Nuts, Bolts, and Clinical Nuggets for Emergency Physicians Treating Opioid Use Disorder. In this episode, we're going to be discussing MAT and what every emergency clinician needs to know about the life-saving intervention and how to implement it in the ED. Back with me today are Donald Stater and Steve Young. Don Stater, tell me how you became involved in MAT. Um, well, as we, we mentioned a little bit in the last episode, um, I became first involved in not using as many opioids. But then, you know, when I heard about the fact that we could actually treat patients who came in with opioid addiction by using MAT, um, I became very convinced that this was the right way to do things. And the evidence has borne that out. Uh, and the practice has borne that out. And I'm very excited to dive into both during this episode. And Steve, you are an expert in addiction. You use MAT on a daily basis. Could you start with the basics? What is MAT? Okay, MAT stands for Medication Assisted Treatment. Uh, many in the addiction community want to keep the acronym but rename it Medication for Addiction Treatment. That changes the emphasis uh, from the psychosocial treatments to the medication, uh, which we now know is really the essential component of treatment. So, Don, let's talk about the treatment of opioid addiction. What do you think ER doctors need to know? So, this is a really, I think, loaded and complex question, but let me simplify it. We've been mistreating opioid use disorders and opioid addiction for a full generation. Most of us really misunderstand addiction and believe that all addictions behave similarly, you know, and that's ridiculous. It's like saying all infections behave the same. Like if a patient came in with bacterial sepsis or pneumonia, that we're going to treat it like a virus, right? Or if someone had a, a fungal infection, that we'd be treating it with an antibiotic that's going to worsen their fungal infection. And that's just stupid. But it goes to show how rudimentary our understanding of addictions has been. And if you wanted to take that even a step further, I'd go so far as to say that we've been committing malpractice, not in the sense of violating the standard of care, but malpractice in the sense of ignoring scientific evidence, right? So here's what we've done with addictions. We've misunderstood them and we've applied to all of them what we've been taught about alcohol addiction, which is that abstinence is really the only way to treat an addiction. And that is not true for opioid use disorder because there are viable treatments that we can bring to the bedside, medications we can bring to the bedside, and that patients might be on long-term. I couldn't agree more, Don. I'd like to reemphasize that point uh, that opioid addiction is different than alcohol addiction. I think that our bias towards psychosocial treatment originates in the historic treatment of alcoholism, where abstinence and 12-step programs have proven most effective. The truth is, opioid addiction does not respond to the same treatments as alcoholism. Alcohol is a small, dirty molecule and has more global effects on the brain. It affects more receptor types and in more regions of the brain than opioids. It does share the final common pathway of all drugs of abuse, as we've already mentioned, and that it increases dopamine within the nucleus accumbens. Abstinence-based therapies, like the ones used to treat alcohol use disorder, generally do not work for opiate use disorder and have roughly a 95% annual relapse rate. 
12-step programs have less than a 5% rate of sobriety at one year when treating opioid use disorder. That is, that is nuts, you know, and, and the fact that we try to apply these, these therapies, or we have historically tried to apply therapies that have a 5% success rate, we're not going to work for 95% of the patients that we see, but that's our go-to, is ludicrous, right? I think most of us would look at those numbers and say, wow, that's pretty dumb, right? So let me add to Steve's point, though. Because there's another world out there, and that is the world of MAT. And when you actually start using MAT drugs, like buprenorphine, you find that we significantly increase patient sobriety and abstinence rates. And while the kind of numbers vary, if you want to remember one number, it's 50%. It's 40-50%, but in my simple ERDAC mind, 50% of patients who you treat with MAT will be sober or abstinent of using illicit drugs at one year. That's huge. That's a number needed to treat of two, right? Rather than when you look at 95 versus 5%, a number needed to treat of 20. That's absolutely tremendous numbers. And not only do you just have a, an increase in the patients who reach recovery and reach sobriety and abstinence. But what you find is so many of these ancillary benefits. You decrease hepatitis C and HIV. You decrease criminal behavior by 80%. You decrease the number of patients who die. I mean, this is one of those therapies that we can apply and have tremendous, tremendous benefits for our patients. Don, it sounds like this is well-studied and there's a lot of evidence behind what you're saying. Could you tell us about some of the evidence that backs up your claim that MAT is the way to go? Yeah, the evidence has really been ignored by us in the emergency department for a long time. So what me and Steve have done uh, in preparation for this podcast is actually to go back and dig up some of the most important papers that we think ER doctors should know about. And ER doctors out there, don't worry, we're not going to take a deep dive. We're not going to talk about methods and, and p-values and you know all these other kind of variables that put us all to sleep. We're just going to give you the sweet, juicy nuggets of what you have to know from these studies. So Steve, let's have you take it away with our first. All right. The first study we'd like to look at is an oldie but goodie. It was done in Sweden in 2003 and published in The Lancet. Uh, they started off randomizing heroin-using patients into two groups. One group received buprenorphine, 16 milligrams per day for one year, and one group received a six-day buprenorphine taper followed by a placebo for one year. Both groups received intensive group and individual counseling. The primary endpoint was one year, of, uh, one year retention in treatment. The daily buprenorphine group had a 75% one-year retention rate. The buprenorphine taper, then placebo group, had a 0% one-year retention rate. The one-year mortality rate was 0% in the daily buprenorphine group and 20% in the buprenorphine taper, uh, buprenorphine taper, then placebo group. The study demonstrated that buprenorphine dramatically increases retention and treatment at one year, buprenorphine significantly reduces one-year mortality, and counseling added little to its effectiveness. I'd like to add that this study could never be done today because buprenorphine is a proven treatment, and this would never pass an IRB. Our second study comes from a Cochrane review, so a big-time meta-analysis, right? And what this did was study the effectiveness of any psychosocial support plus an agonist maintenance therapy versus standard agonist treatment for opioid dependence. So basically, if I can simplify it, you got 
an agonist such as buprenorphine and psychologic support versus getting an agonist without as much psychologic support, right? And this pulled together 35 studies with over 4,000 participants and patients. And it found that adding any psychosocial support to standard maintenance treatment does not add additional benefits. It's important to note that standard maintenance therapy at methadose clinics does include some counseling. But I think that what you should take home from this is that the most important piece to treating opioid addiction is actually to use the medications. The medications are really the key here in helping patients. Right, Don. And to add to that, one commonly shared view in the addiction community is that there is an inverse relationship between the importance of the agonist and counseling over time. In the beginning stages of treatment, almost 100% of the benefit comes from the agonist. But over time, its importance for many diminishes and the benefit of counseling increases. Relapse prevention strategies are developed and co-occurring psychiatric conditions are addressed. Also, case management is important in the beginning to help with wraparound services, such as help with housing, transportation, and coordination of medical care. And I'd like to note that I work with many highly talented and dedicated master's level counselors who contribute immensely to the treatment experience of our patients. I do, however, feel the role of counselors in the beginning stages of treatment is limited and that requirements for counseling should never get in the way of agonist treatment. So, Steve, I'm a little relieved. I, at first, I thought uh, you meant that counseling had no role in the treatment of opioid use disorders, and clearly, clearly it does. Yeah, and I think that people sometimes misread the study to think that counseling is worthless. I could not disagree more with that. I think counseling is an extremely important part of patients getting into long-term recovery and keeping them in long-term recovery, as Steve said. But I also want to emphasize to those out there who think that counseling is just the one thing that's going to help patients is that, no, that's not the fact. And in fact, that there is evidence that the medication is the most important piece to keeping patients in long-term recovery. Okay, if I could move on to the next study, uh, and it's a biggie for us in the emergency department. It answers the question, can MAT work in the ED? Does initiating MAT in the ED make a difference? This study was published in JAMA in, in 2015. Primary author was Gail D'Onofrio. So they had 329 ED patients with opiate use disorder screened and randomized. One-third to the referral group, patients were given a pamphlet. One-third to the brief intervention group, plus facilitated referral by a health promotion advocate. One-third to the buprenorphine group uh, also had brief intervention and referral. The primary outcome was enrollment in and receiving addiction treatment 30 days after randomization. Then the results, uh, the referral group had 37% still in treatment 30 days, the brief intervention and referral group 45%, the buprenorphine plus brief intervention and referral group 78%. Patients needing inpatient treatment services later on in the referral group 37%, brief intervention and referral group 35%, buprenorphine plus brief intervention and referral group 11%. Conclusion? ED-initiated buprenorphine treatment, significantly increased engagement in addiction treatment, reduced self-reported illicit opioid use, and decreased use of inpatient addiction treatment services. So starting patients on buprenorphine in the ED is the best way to get our patients into treatment. 
you know, um, Gail has been such a leader in this in this field, you know, just truly a revolutionary when it comes to our perception of how to treat this in the emergency department. Um, so I just want to give her a ton of credit. I know that when you look back at this probably 10 years from now, she's going to be one of the heroines of emergency care. So the next study actually goes to what happens when we do not treat patients with opioid use disorder with an opioid agonist. And this study was published in uh, Psychiatry in June of 2018, and it's titled Effects of Medication-Assisted Treatment on Mortality Among Opioid Users, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analyses. So again, I like my meta-analyses. They pull together a lot of studies. They give us a lot of really strong data. And I'm not going to go over all this, but here's the findings. You have two findings to remember for those of you who are listening. One, the finding is that compared to patients receiving MAT, untreated, untreated patients with opioid use disorder at one year had a 2.5 times greater mortality, and they had an eight times greater overdose mortality. The conclusion is really simple. MAT keeps people alive. So we get some concrete numbers. There's a recent study in Annals of Emergency Medicine. Um, it was titled, One-Year Mortality of Opioid Overdose Victims Who Received Naloxone by Emergency Medical Services. Um, excluding those that died the same day of naloxone administration, 9.9% died within one year. 9.9% mortality rate at one year. The median age of death in the study was 46. Let's put that into context. Compare this to a study published in Open Heart in 2016 entitled Mortality Pattern and Cause of Death in a Long-Term Follow-Up of Patients with STEMI Treated with Primary PCI. Of all patients, including patients not surviving to discharge, there was a 7.3% mortality rate at one year. The mean age of death was 72. You're talking about a disease process that is every bit as deadly as acute coronary syndrome. There was a greater one-year mortality associated with opioid overdose than with STEMIs requiring PCI. As emergency physicians, we need to give the same attention to patients with OUD as we do those with CAD. One could argue that we, could give them, that we should give them more attention because there is the potential for more life lost. The opioid overdose group had a mean age 26 years younger than the STEMI group. Yeah, and I think that it's so important to understand that, that opioid use disorder, those patients are as sick as your patients who are having a STEMI when you look at their one-year mortality. They're actually sicker. And it's a disease of 20 and 30-year-olds. You know, it's not a disease of patients who are 60 and 70 and have had a nice full life in a sense, you know. When you think about it, that compounds the tragedy of opioid use disorder. And it really just compels us to think, yes, we need to treat opioid use disorder like a medical emergency, which it is. Don, that is that is very interesting and very alarming. Steve, this sounds like a huge paradigm shift in the field. It is a paradigm shift. The idea that opiate withdrawal is not life-threatening is a myth. Patients will treat their withdrawal with opioids and many will die of an overdose. When they present to our EDs in, in withdrawal, have overdosed or have needle-related infections, we need to manage them appropriately. We need to either initiate treatment or at least give them Narcan and make a solid referral to treatment. It's the right thing to do. It does sound like the right thing to do. So what are other 
countries and states doing? Uh, have any other states or countries had success in implementing MAT widely and changing the trajectory of opioid overdose death? You know, yes. The The simple answer is yes. And I'll have to pull the studies uh, for this because we didn't prepare them and I don't have the study names, but let me give you two examples. One is France. France um, in the 1980s, I believe, was experiencing this tremendous heroin epidemic. Really, tens of thousands of French pe people were dying. And what the French government said uh, was, oh my gosh, we have all these patients dying and all these patients getting HIV from IV drug use. And what they did was completely liberalize and, and really push the availability of buprenorphine. So we had this buprenorphine then being used to treat all these different patients. And here's what they found from this. And I remember the numbers because they're pretty damn dramatic. You had over eight years a 90% reduction in heroin overdoses. You went from at the peak of their epidemic, 50,000 people dying each year of heroin overdose, and you decreased that to 5,000. You had an increase of buprenorphine to levels which I believe were almost a little south of 100,000 patients who are being treated with buprenorphine. And that just goes to show you, when you treat a medical disease like a medical disease and you use proven treatments like buprenorphine, you can really have huge effects. So a lot of people will say, well, that's great, but them Frenchies aren't us Americans, Right. They don't eat red meat. They drink all that wine and eat all that cheese. And they have socialized medicine. And they have socialized medicine. And they have uh, syringe exchange, much more available. Damn commies. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I, for all the French people out there, uh, we, love, we love you too. But this has been proven here in America as well. And the place that did it as actually a published study is Baltimore. Baltimore had this huge epidemic of heroin overdoses and drug overdoses, especially in the late 1990s. I think, if I'm remembering right, they had around 300 people die. Um, they really pushed to, one, have more methadone, and then two, in the 2000s, really pushed to increase buprenorphine availability. And what happened to their overdose rates? It's not a mystery. It's pretty much a linear relationship that their overdose levels were cut by two-thirds. I think it was like in, in the later 2000s, like 2009 or so, that their overdose rates have decreased to 100. So from 300 to 100, all by using more buprenorphine to treat opioid use disorder. So it sounds like the literature clearly shows us that MAT works. And I can't help but notice that a lot of this literature is old. This is therapy that's been used for decades have gone by. Um, so it works. How many people in the United States are getting it? You know, the treatment gap here is really atrocious. That's the word I'd use. It's an atrocious treatment gap. We in medicine have ignored these proven treatments for so long. And when you look at the country, it's as high as 90% of people are not getting the treatment they need. Here in Colorado, we have a treatment gap of 75%. Three out of every four people who have an opioid use disorder are actually not getting the treatment that might save their lives. Yeah, Don, if, could you imagine if 75% uh, or three out of four people in Colorado with coronary artery disease, heart disease, cancers, diabetes were getting treated? That would, that would just blow people's minds. Oh, yeah. There'd be friggin' riots, right, if we denied treatment to that many patients of another disease process. And it just goes to show you how powerful 
stigma is and how powerful inertia can be of this is the way we've always done it. Those patients don't deserve treatment. It really is one of the greatest tragedies of modern medicine is that we've not treated this disease. I both love and hate to play the devil's advocate here, but I'll bet some of your listeners are thinking, is this treatment you're giving opioids to people with an opioid use disorder? Is that part of the cause, perhaps, for this treatment gap? The simple answer is yes. I've heard so many emergency physicians um, come up and say, well, you know, why are we treating an opioid addiction with an opioid? Aren't we just trading one addiction for another? Especially after Colorado has made huge efforts to reduce the prescription of opioids. And here you're advising that we prescribe an opioid well, or a partial agonist. Yes, or a partial agonist. And here's, here's what I'd say. For people who say that you're changing one addiction for another, I would go back to the definition of addiction and say, you know what? You don't understand what an addiction is. Because what we do when we actually treat patients who have an opioid addiction, right? They have dependency plus all these tremendous behaviors that we are, that are destructive to themselves, to society, to their families, to our culture. When we actually treat them with an agonist like buprenorphine, all you change that addiction for is a dependency. They still are dependent on an opioid, but what goes away are all those things that we don't like. What goes away is their criminality. What goes away is the fact that they're not participating with the families. What goes away is the fact that they're homeless or don't have a job. Once you stabilize people on buprenorphine or on methadone, they're able to put their lives back together. They're able to participate in society. They're able to hold a job. They're able to do all the things that we actually care about. And that's a huge and transformative treatment that we can provide our patients. <laughs> Don, I, I apologize, but I'd like to circle back to some neurobiology. Oh, my gosh. No, I'm rolling that's my good. Eyes. Go for it. <laughs> All right. The long half-life of the drugs we're about ready to discuss, buprenorphine and methadone, are what create a steady state uh, that prevents the cycle of intoxication and withdrawal. This allows neurotransmitters and their receptors and neural pathways to normalize and will eventually allow the brain to heal. This is not trading one addiction for another. Yeah, and that's, that's great. Even at the brain level, this is behaving very differently than an opioid use disorder where you're getting these huge highs and huge lows. It's, it's stable. The brain is repairing itself. That neuroplasticity is kicking in. You're no longer having programmed cell death from overusing and having these huge floods of dopamine. And really, when you look at the molecular level, and the, and, the, and the personal community level, the micro and the macro are reflecting one another. And I hope that that really puts the dagger in that concept that you're trading one addiction for another. So I've heard people compare the current opioid epidemic to the HIV and AIDS epidemic of the 1980s. How valid do you think that comparison is? Oof. Well, um, here's what I'd say about both, is both of these epidemics were tremendous tragedies uh, and that really captured the focus of the entire nation, right? I, I remember the fear associated with that HIV epidemic. And, you know, that HIV epidemic had this huge ramp up where it went from nothing in the 1980s to suddenly droves and tens of thousands of patients in the 1990s were dying. And that very closely reflects this opioid epidemic where we've had this kind of tremendous and rapid increase of death. 
here's how I'd say they're different. In 1995, we had around 42,000 Americans die of HIV AIDS. And you know what happened in 1995? Do any of you remember? Yeah, we developed antiretrovirals. That's right. We invented new drugs to treat HIV, and it changed the game. We were now able to go to the bedside and offer heart, right? Highly, highly active retroviral therapy, and patients stopped dying. Patients got better. And what you see is one of the most remarkable tales in all of medicine, where in 1995, we had 42,000 dead Americans from HIV. And two years later, in 1997, only 16,000 people died of HIV AIDS in America. One of medicine's greatest success stories. Now, let's compare how that's different to the opioid epidemic, right? Where we've had this tremendous increase of death and carnage, and morbidity, and mortality. 70,000 people, over 70,000 people died of an overdose in 2017. Over 50,000 of those were from an opioid overdose. We've been able to cut the rates of opioid use disorder deaths since the 1930s. That's almost 90 years. The only reason we haven't done so is because we decided not to use these drugs. And that is a tragedy. We should all hang our heads in shame. And I think that history will look back and, not, and shake its head at how we've actually approached this patient population. But here is the silver lining. Here's how this can be the same as the HIV epidemic in the 1980s. We can decide to use the medications that are available to us. And if we do so, we can have a similar decrease in death the way that we had with HIV AIDS. We just have to use the tools that are available. I think it's worth noting, Don, also that both of these epidemics had a lot of stigma associated with them. Um, what you're saying, if I hear you right, is in the case of HIV, we rallied and developed treatments and used them effectively. And in the case of the current epidemic, those treatments have been here for 90 years and we haven't been using them. Yep. And I think it just goes to show you how deadly a force stigma is. Really, the only reason we haven't used these drugs on patients with opioid use disorder is from stigma, because the science is there, right? The evidence is there. We've just decided not to use these because it's okay to let this patient population die because they're bad people. All of that feeds into this, this narrative that surrounded these patients for so long. Um, and that's something that we have to change. And particularly now that we have the neurobiology that Steve has laid out for us, there's no excuse for not treating this chronic medical condition. So let's summarize the five key takeaways from this podcast. First, medication-assistant treatment is a key and growing frontier in emergency department care. Second, addiction is a disease that is misunderstood and not adequately taught in school. We've misunderstood deeply that the treatment of all addiction is simply abstinence. Third, the evolving thinking around opioid use disorder is that it is best treated with medication. An opioid use disorder should be treated with an opioid agonist or partial agonist. Fourth, MAT is shown to substantially decrease mortality and morbidity. There is copious evidence for this, much of which will be posted in the show notes. Finally, Number five, the treatment gap for opioid use disorder is egregious and is as high as 75% in our state, 
we can do better. In our next episode, we're going to talk about buprenorphine, the hallmark drug that is going to change the way you treat opioid use disorder in the emergency department. Thanks for listening. Thank you for tuning in. You can find show notes, links to further information, and so much more at coloradomat.org. Please give us a visit.